Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 18. The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. The sun was coming up. The pure, colorless vastness of the sky stretched over him, indifferent to him and his suffering. Harry sat down in the tent entrance and took a deep breath of clean air. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Thanks as ever to our amazing patrons, Lizzie, Patrick Zimmerman, Mackenzie Pohl, Laura Zilverberg, and Sahir Siddiqui. We literally couldn't do this without you, and we're so, so grateful. And also to the two Zs, in this list. Hey, hey, <laughs> fellow Z's. I am so impressed with this week's local group shout out. Martha Jakobsen runs the local group in Uppsala, Sweden called Uppsaliamus, <laughs> which has to rank in my like top three local group names ever. It's amazing. <laughs> like, is it comparative to what our local group was called? Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. <laughs> the original. We're like the original flavor of your favorite candy. And this is like the version with mint, which I'm a big fan of. Totally. Um, and if you want to find out more about this local group and all our other local groups, go to harrypottersacredtext.com and click on local groups. Vanessa, we're reading chapter 18 through this theme of youth, something you and I just remember in our distant memory. Uh, and you're telling a story. What have you got for us? So I've talked about this relationship before, and I feel like it looms larger in Harry Potter's sacred text land than it does in my psyche. That's fine. <laughs> so I was dating this lovely man, kid, I don't know, whatever he was, when I was 18 and 19 years old. And we came home to visit my parents, and we were having dinner. 
And my mom looked at us and was like, oh, you two are the exact same age Peter and I were, my dad <gasps> and she were, when we got married. And I, oh my God. we looked at each other and we both were like, no. And then we <laughs> looked at my parents and that was the first time that it occurred to me that my parents were children when they got married because I remember thinking I was like I still live in the dorms in college and I had just gotten my first credit card and my parents were like buying a house and like mind you you could buy a house for much less money in 1971 like proportionally to your income but I was just like oh my god my parents they made this so adult commitment and what it made me realize is just how complicated youth was. My parents have one of the best marriages of any couple I know. And I wonder if for them, they were like, oh, we love each other and we're just going to commit and jump in. And that actually that like youthful hope is actually something that sustained them now for almost 50 years. And I, of course, was not at all ready to get married at 19, right? Like, I'm so glad I didn't marry that lovely man and that I'm in the position I'm in, right? So I think that youth in just every way is relative to me. I think in many ways I'm quite the grown-up, but like I've lived in the dorms for most of my adult life. I was like, how does someone get internet for themselves? <laughs> like when I was 37 years old. And friend of the podcast, Chloe Angel, her grandma is 105. So she looks at her 80-year-old friends and is like, they're kids. So <laughs> I just really think as we as we look at this chapter, which is to a large extent, like these are the chapters that are about loss of innocence, right? These are the chapters where they even have a conversation, Harry and Hermione. Hermione excuses Dumbledore. She's like, oh, he was only 17. He was just a kid when he was friends with Grindelwald. And Harry is like, he's the same age we are now and we're making good choices. And so I think this question of when youth ends and when we hold ourselves accountable for things in a way that was, I was an adult, I should have known better, or I was a kid, of course I did that, right? These things are so fluid and yet they are essential to the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. My parents tell themselves a story that they were like completely sober adults when they got married. And I'm like, nope, babies. <laughs> That's so interesting because it basically is asking the question, like, how does a youth end? Is it a formal kind of change of status like a marriage? Is it an experience or a responsibility like Harry and Hermione have? Is it an age that you reach? Like, when does that period of life come to an end? That's juicy. So, Casper, it is your turn to go first in the 30-second recap. Are you ready? There's a story within a story, and I would like for you to somehow make that clear. Okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> okay, on your mark, get set, go. So there's a story and a story, and this normal story is that Harry and Hermione are still talking, and it's like, oh, the wand is broken. Harry's like, I have all these feelings. Um, I feel so betrayed. And then Hermione's like, oh, I just pilfered this copy of the book that all the stories are in, so let's go into the story in the story. And then Dumbledore's like, oh, I came home because um, my mom suddenly died, and we don't really know why. And I became friends with this lovely exchange student who's related to Mathilda, which I'd kind of forgotten, who's like very handsome, but also very right-wing. And then they form a brief friendship, and then it's over, because is for the greater good. 
Oh, yes. He was the Mitch McConnell of the Wizarding World. <laughs> you think Mitch McConnell is handsome? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. 30 seconds on the clock for you, my dear. I believe we have the concept that there's a story within a story, but maybe we're not yet fully clear what that story is. So hopefully you can fill in the gaps. <laughs> Happily. I'll try. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So we, the story that we are in is the one written by Rita Skeeter, who she veritaserumed Bethilda Bagshot to get. And it is all of this like, juicy information about Dumbledore and his youth and the fact that when he started out younger, he wasn't so pro-Muggle and he actually thought that wizards should dominate over the Muggle world. And there are a lot of like hints and accusations that Grindelwald and Dumbledore actually killed Ariana in some sort of satanic ritual. And that is why Aberforth punched Dumbledore in the nose. Which like, if you murder my younger sister through a satanic ritual, I will also punch you in the nose. I was going to say, he was lucky it was just a punch. And in public. Yeah. Okay, so Casper, let's start at the place that we already mentioned, which is that there's like literally a debate about accountability and youth and when it ends in this chapter, right? So Hermione is excusing Dumbledore that he didn't quite have his head on straight about his priorities in terms of muggle wizard relations. And Harry is like, but I do, right? And I'm the same age. And I go back and forth as to whether Harry is being fair, because we do know that Harry has this like gut nature when it comes to this issue, right? Immediately he rejected Malfoy and chose Ron. And that wasn't about like Muggle Wizard, but that was about choosing sort of as Harry would see the underdog in that dynamic. And so we know there's something about him that like yearns for fairness and justice. But the thing that Harry is not accounting for is that he had a teacher in old, wise Dumbledore. And so he has learned from what Dumbledore considers to be his biggest mistake, potentially, right? Or one of his biggest mistakes. Mm, mm. I guess I'm wondering if we think that Harry was capable of coming to a totally different decision if his education had allowed that, right? I mean, that's sort of our theory on Draco, is that he was raised that way, and so we right. forgive him. And so it's like, Harry is giving himself some credit here that I wonder if he as an individual deserves, which he really might, or if it's like, yeah, dude, you were taught by Dumbledore. So, of course, you're further ahead of where he was when he was 17. What really struck me in the text is that Harry says to Hermione, I thought you'd say they were young. And so to me, that reveals that Harry also had that same thought, right? He was also like, oh but he was only 17. And then he has this kind of second moment where he's like, no, but I'm 17. And so in some ways I feel like Harry might initially have had those standards for everyone else. And then only because he's experiencing this, they have changed. If if he hadn't been having to fight Voldemort and still had Dumbledore's wisdom being passed on and, and, and time with that kind of wise mentor and teacher, that it would have been different. And I think, you know, when we get to the very end of the book and we see Harry with his own children... I'm sure Harry would be the last person who'd want to expose his own kids to the kind of experiences that he'd had, right? Like that sense of wanting to protect a child's youth or to allow young people to really be children. There's a sense of innocence or playfulness or safety. I think maybe that's what I'm really trying to say is that if Harry had been safe, he would have thought about it differently, I think. I, I'm just sort of noticing how remarkable Harry is because mm. I totally understand that 
Harry has experienced a world, you know, of Hermione, where muggle-born wizards are incredible, right? And that, of course, to your point, is about experience because a headmaster like Dumbledore decided to let in muggle-borns, right? Or that happened before. But certainly it's a policy decision that Dumbledore is upholding. But the thing that I think is remarkable about Harry is that he cares so much about muggles. He was raised by abusive muggles. And the fact that Harry still has that sense of justice, I mean, I think some of it is his experience, right? His best friend's parents are muggles. And so he's like, I don't want to oppress the Grangers, right? Like Dr. and Dr. Granger. But I also just think that he is wise beyond his years. I have never thought about this question. I'm so embarrassed. I've never thought about it because you're absolutely right. Harry would have every reason to be bitter, to be vengeful, to be angry and mad and want to, you know, take it out on muggles. And of course, we know that Dumbledore has that reason too, right? And maybe even in a different way because of the attack of these boys on Ariana, as we're going to learn about. But I've never thought about where that softness and that forgiveness even, or at least that that generosity of spirit that Harry has towards muggles, where that comes from. And I wonder if it's because he sees very, very quickly, whether it's in Snape, whether it's, of course, in Voldemort and his family history, that he can see that wizards can be just as horrific to one another and to muggles as muggles can to each other and to wizards. And so... He's able to draw a dividing line, not between wizards and muggles in the way that so many people do, but between people who enact violence and people who don't. And that that kind of crosses over those two categories. But I think that that can change even in adulthood. Like in the quote, right, that we're looking at, there's this idea that there can be folly in youth. And I would just like to say, like, there can Mm. be folly in adulthood, right? We all know stories about people who in their 60s are like, oh my God, I did so much wrong and I want to do better. We want to hold people accountable for their actions and we want society to be growing and evolving and we want to leave room for them to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that's a great way of actually trying to dissemble the difference between youth and adulthood. Like there's this idea that youth is a time of exploration and change, but that can still happen later. And in fact, the the opposite is true, right? You can be very set in your ways. It doesn't have to be set in stone that this is a period of kind of wild exploration. But I do think there is one difference between youth and adulthood that also comes through in this chapter. And it's about a sort of I don't know, an intensity of experience or the the season of first times, perhaps. And I always think back to watching Call Me By Your Name, which we went to see together, and just the kind of sadness that I had in watching that, that this was a story about someone falling in love so intensely, falling in love for the first time. And that as an adult, at least in my experience, it's very, very hard to live like that all the time. And so we we do withhold things, even in our closest friendships, even in our marriages or romantic partnerships, because there's there's just some experience that we've had after that first time of loss. And I see that with Dumbledore and Grindelwald. At least that's how I interpret that friendship. Even if there was no romance there, we can have all sorts of debates about the queer reading of this particular relationship. But just that intensity, right? The the hours that they send each other at night because the conversations in the day were not enough, right? Like that consistent reaching out towards each other. And I think that does change as we grow older. That, That intensity, I think, fades a little bit. Yeah, it does. And I just think that, you know, I'm somebody with 
friends at, I would really say all ages, like my 12-year-old goddaughter is a friend who I'm in regular touch with. And then I have close friends in their 70s. And I love that there's such a differentiation of experience and conversation. And I think that there's a difference between innocence and naivete and like a lack of wisdom. And I think just that Mm. across all ages, there are different wisdoms and that we have to be listening to each other. Because I do think that there are moments that we want young people to have the creative spark and to demand things of us. Oh, 100%. This was my experience when we were young people who were organizing around climate change, particularly while we were engaging with the United Nations negotiations. Because at first I was like, oh, we're going to put pressure on these negotiators and with pieces in the newspaper and and chants outside their doors and all that kind of stuff. And I realized very quickly, like we were having very little impact until I heard from one of the negotiators who said, it means so much to us to have you here because you're reminding us of what's at stake. And so it was just such a reminder to be like, oh, even though I felt powerless, actually just having young people present in a decision-making process changed the attitude of people who were actually making the decisions. And I love that, that there's a as you say, there's kind of different types of wisdom or different types of contributions that we can have at different ages, even if we're not necessarily aware of what that is while we're doing it, especially as young people. And we see Harry change so many of the adults in his life, right? I mean, I think Narcissa is changed by Harry in the end. Yes. I think that McGonagall, because of Harry, has like a higher tolerance for rule breaking and for like talking back. (laughs) I think that younger people change older people in such important ways. Mm. I know this is something I've talked about before, but I think as we age, it's so important that we hold open the possibility that young people will change us and that we continue to follow the leadership of young people. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. I feel like we have to talk about Dumbledore. I mean, so much of this chapter is about his story, his life, or at least one telling of his story. We know that Rita Skeeter is far from a trustworthy source, which Hermione reminds us of. Yeah, and that, you know, Elias Doge wrote basically the same set of facts, just with a totally different point of view in the article that we read at the beginning of the book. So we know that there's at least two versions of this story. Do you mean Dog Breath Doge? (laughs) Who are you, Trump, that you're like... Loving the mean nickname? It is extremely Trumpian. My God, I hadn't even seen that connection. No, mostly I love how Rita is like so desperately trying to make dog breath happen. And it's like, don't try to make dog breath happen. Um, (laughs) She just keeps inserting it. It's like, we get it, Rita. You don't like the guy. Um, (laughs) But what I want to say about Dumbledore is that you were just talking about how young people can influence and shape older people too. And I feel like Dumbledore actively resists this. I think he is so scarred by the experiences of his youth. I think, you know, obviously the the death of his sister, the death of his mother, the imprisonment of his father, the breakaway from his brother, and of course this intense friendship which leads to so many of those problems. I just sense a great sadness or a great weight that sits on Dumbledore, which said, when I get close to people, people get hurt. And so Dumbledore is this very isolating character always and always has been throughout the books. And I feel like, I wonder if this is a place where where we see him kind of resist that change. Because of course the absence and the distance between them is something that Harry focuses on so much in this chapter. Yeah, I mean, I think that what Dumbledore was doing in his youth makes total sense, right? He was trying to create a hierarchy in his mind. He was trying to understand his own identity. He comes to the right conclusions in the end. Like, I think that all of this is quite forgivable mm-hmm. in in youth as long as you change. And the only thing I'll disagree with you is that we know that there's at least one instance where Dumbledore has let himself be changed by a young person. When at some point Dumbledore says to Harry, I never counted on loving you. He was like, I was going to tell you all this information in your first year, and then I was going to tell you all this information in your second year, and I just wanted you to stay naive and a child for a little bit longer because I didn't count on the fact that I was going to care about you. And maybe that is why later he keeps such a distance in part. We know that there are various reasons at various times as to why, but he's like, look, I lost sight of my strategy because I loved you. Part of what I think the difference between childhood and adulthood is, is that as a kid, you're allowed to quit and and throw a tantrum and go to bed. And as an adult, you sort of have to persevere. And that's what I think being a good grown up is. It's saying this is my responsibility. It doesn't matter if I'm tired or beaten down. Like I have to get up again and do it. And I think that Mm. Dumbledore is trying to be an adult, right? He's like, I can't make the same mistake Mm. again. I have to carry through. 
I really think Dumbledore is trying to learn from his mistakes and he might be learning the wrong lessons, but he's just trying to be the adult here. And that's been true even in these stories about Grindelwald. I mean, you know, even that sense of for the greater good. I remember as a teenager having some pretty, looking back on it now, like some pretty intense views where I felt like there was a right way and a wrong way. And I think one of the things that has come with age, at least for me, is a complexification, right? Or or just things get more complicated. Not that you don't have the same values, but maybe that you understand more perspectives or you've had experiences which reveal new intricacies. And there's, there's something pure and idealistic, which is in itself beautiful, but perhaps blunt as a way of seeing the world. And I I really empathize with Dumbledore's trajectory. And I think in part because he doesn't have adults in his life, clearly, who are able to help him navigate these really tragic situations and how those ideas are wrapped up in those situations, that he's had to do that all for himself. Throughout this chapter, I I just felt Dumbledore's loneliness just kind of screaming in the page. And I remember so much loneliness as a young person that I'm like, oh, maybe that part of youth has just always stayed with him, right? Like he's never found that kind of sharing, caring relationship in adulthood. Yeah. You're going to laugh that I forgot this, but I forgot that Grindelwald started a concentration camp. It's called Nurmengard, which like sounds like Nuremberg and it is absolutely an intentional call out to concentration camps. I mean, it's even got like for the greater good carved over the entrance of the concentration camp. As you say, it's not subtle. Yeah, which is an allusion to Auschwitz, which famously had a saying emblazoned over it, work will set you free. And we don't know exactly how old Grindelwald was when he ended up building this concentration camp. And there's actually, I just want to say, there's a lot of Holocaust imagery in this chapter, right? Like Harry now has a scar on his forearm. But I don't know at what point, you know, this has been a live question in the Jewish community. Like, how long do you hold people accountable for what they did in moments of relative youth? And, Mm. you know, the statute of limitations is a question that's a live question in the Me Too movement, right? So I just think that these questions are such live questions. Also, just in terms of our personal lives, right? Like, at what point do we forgive our siblings for things that we did when we were eight years old? Or Mm. which stories do we stop telling? Well, there's also something about memory and forgetting that shows up in the text where, you know, we saw at the wedding of Bill and Fleur how few people recognized Grindelwald's symbol. The text tells us that like a lot of English people or, you know, British wizarding society don't know about this horrific war that happened on the continent. There's like not a lot of information sharing. And even as the generation of people who survived the Second World War really is dying out, how much of those stories do we tell? At what age do we tell them? You know, how do you introduce something like the Holocaust? And if we don't do it, will it happen again? You know, all all of those questions are also... Questions of when do we start to tell stories about the ultimate evil that we are capable of human beings? You know, there's a line, Casper, in this chapter, undreamed of terrors. Mm. And I think that that is one of the things about youth is that you can't quite conceive of all of the horrible things, right? Like, I mean, this is something I've talked about a lot on the podcast, but A central trauma of my life is that when I was 12, there was a 6.4 earthquake where I lived. 
And like I had nightmares for years. I mean, it happened in the middle of the night. So I started to become afraid of going to bed. And three days before that happened, that was a completely undreamed of terror. Yeah. And then as we get more involved in the world and we read the newspaper and it seems to start to feel like there are no undreamed of terrors, right? Even as we live through this pandemic, even this is like a terror I have dreamed of. Yeah. And of course, things can always get worse. That's not what I'm saying. I think we should be grateful. But I do think that one of the things about adulthood is that we stop being shocked by terrors. We're just like, yep, this too. It's so interesting. As as I'm hearing you say that, what I'm thinking about is a young Tom Riddle going to Slughorn to ask, can I create more than one Horcrux? Where did that imagination come from to push the boundaries of what was already a horrific act? And I mean, obviously he he had this hor- horrible youth, right? We We know much of his story as a young child, which I think is is wrapped up in this in some way. But there's also something about, well, what was he exposed to in Hogwarts? How was he led down that path? You know, where did where did that imagination come from? Right? That undreamed of imagination of the horrors that he's now inflicting. Because I think one of the other defining features of youth is is formation, right? We are becoming. And that as we said before, that that continues throughout our lives, right? We are still changing, we are still growing. But there is a speed at which that formation is happening, whether it's new experiences, whether it's new information, the the potential to be independent in some way. I think for Tom Riddle, that was so entwined with having power over people, with having the capacity to hurt people, that somehow he ended up down that road, which is frightening. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that part of it must have been the story of exceptionalism that everybody was telling him. He was telling that to himself as a youth, but then everybody was like, oh, you're so handsome. You're so smart. And so you start to tell yourself a story of I better live forever. I'm so amazing. Right. I was reading just an article last night from the author Kate Mann, who is a philosopher, and she was talking about the difference between sexism and misogyny. And she was arguing that misogyny now is absent of sexism in a lot of places, that you can think that women are just as capable as men, but you still think that you deserve to dominate them. And you don't consciously think that, but you just have this story of like, as a man, this is my domain. I think that Voldemort has both. He has a sense of superiority and hates muggles. But I think it's also about this entitlement of like, but I'm just supposed to dominate you. Wow, that is powerful. I want to draw us somewhere else in the text, Vanessa, who we haven't really talked about is Rita Skeeter. I mean, all of this story about Dumbledore is her writing. And I'm curious about why she is the way she is, right? Like what was what was Rita's youth? But the most interesting thing that stood out to me was her relationship regarding Bethilda Bagshot, where we have this kind of comparison of two uh, historians or, or at least storytellers about the past and the way in which Rita goes about treating someone who is old. She's drugged her, first of all, to kind of access these memories. Uh, she calls her, you know, Batty, which might be a cute nickname, but it, you know, it's just a nasty way of talking about someone who's older. So there's there's something about some of the nastier sides of youth or the, or the ways in which youth can discount old age. Oh, and I mean, I think we see that at every phase. Youth at a pretty young age starts really questioning older people. And I think, you know, that's a healthy skepticism. But I think that Rita and Batilda are at the point 
where Rita is treating old baddie as a child again, right? And I think that that's something that we're we're trained to do with the elderly. There's a certain point where you start discounting their opinions and their thoughts and you start excusing their behavior in a way that you would a toddler, right? If a toddler yells like, no, I hate you. You're like, okay. And then if an elderly person does that, (laughs) you're like, okay, right? And it's just an interesting question and a live question for me about how much of that is cultural awfulness where we stop listening to older people and how much of that is compassion and saying, look, you're older. You're not the person who I knew you to be for so long. And so I'm going to start holding you to a different childlike standard. It's so interesting. We've talked about in this conversation how, you know, there's space in in young adulthood and certainly also later for change and growth and, and kind of maturation. But I think there's something painful not necessarily in ourselves changing, but watching someone else change, especially when we want them to be the way they have been. And I think this is especially true as a young person. Maybe you're depending, whether it's your parents or a certain teacher. And Harry has this with Dumbledore, absolutely, where he wants him to be a certain way. And then when he has not been like that, or he's changed, or he's suddenly learning more about Dumbledore and his his picture of Dumbledore has had to change, it's painful. It's And it feels like a betrayal because we kind of counted, I guess, on those people staying the same. So th- there's something interesting there about giving ourselves that space, but struggling to give others that same capacity. Yeah, and that happens with people our own age too, right? Somebody discovers something about themselves and you're like, wait, we had mutually agreed upon a certain version of you. And do I like <laughs> this new one, right? Mostly no. <laughs> So, Casper, it is time for our last sacred imagination for a while. And it was my turn to choose a passage. And I just chose from the the very beginning of the chapter. First of all, it's like very descriptive, lovely language. But also then we get into Dumbledore's biography, which I don't think is a great place to invite ourselves into. So let's take a deep breath in. The sun was coming up. The pure, colorless vastness of the sky stretched over him, indifferent to him and his suffering. Harry sat down in the tent entrance and took a deep breath of clean air, simply to be alive to watch the sun rise over the sparkling, snowy hillside ought to have been the greatest treasure on earth, yet he could not appreciate it. His senses had been spiked by the calamity of losing his wand. He looked out over a valley blanketed in snow, distant church bells chiming through the glittering silence. Without realizing it, he was digging his fingers into his arms as if he were trying to resist physical pain. He had spilled his own blood more times than he could count. He had lost all the bones in his right arm once. This journey had already given him scars to his chest and forearm to join those on his hand and forehead. But never... Until this moment, had he felt himself to be so fatally weakened, vulnerable, and naked, as though the best part of his magical power had been torn from him. He knew exactly what Hermione would say if he expressed any of this. The wand is only as good as the wizard. But she was wrong. 
his case was different. She had not felt the wand spin like a needle of a compass and shoot golden flames at his enemy. He had lost the protection of the twin cores, and only now that it was gone did he realize how much he had been counting on it. He pulled the pieces of the broken wand out of his pocket and, without looking at them, tucked them away in Hagrid's pouch around his neck. The pouch was now too full of broken and useless objects to take any more. Harry's hand brushed the old snitch through the moleskin, and for a moment he had to fight the temptation to pull it out and throw it away. Casper, what did you notice? Oh, there's a couple of things. Just the idea of him feeling vulnerable and naked with his wand broken just really gave me this sense of like a, a baby, like a newborn, you know, defenseless, so small and, you know, newly arrived in the world. Yeah, the, the, so much of the imagery, <laughs> I, I wasn't Harry. I ended up actually, <laughs> this sounds really very, very weird, but I felt myself being Mrs. Fig. You know, Mrs. Fig has spent 11 years of her life looking over Harry, you know, from afar, from a distance, keeping tabs on what's going on as best she can. And I don't think that ended when he went to Hogwarts. I mean, we know it continues during the summers, but I can imagine that she is sitting there with like a candle burning and every day gets up and tries to imagine where he might be. And she has always known that she can't protect him. But that's not what she's there for. She's keeping watch. And every day that there isn't a headline with like Potter caught on the run, she knows that he's safe. And I, I'm i just imagining that she's like praying for him every day with a candle lit next to him. And that that this description is kind of what I can imagine her seeing in her mind's eye as she thinks about where he might be. So I don't know where, <laughs> I don't know where that came from in the text, but I, I just suddenly felt myself as Mrs. Fig. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I love Mrs. Fig. So anytime anyone brings up Mrs. Fig, I'm like, mm-hmm. How about you? I mean, I, I'm not nearly as creative as you. So I was Harry. And what I felt was such deep anger, the mm. noticing of the beauty. It's like, I can't even appreciate beauty anymore. Like, that's how angry I am. And mm. the world has robbed me of my ability to relish this view. Mm. I mean, this just sounds so gorgeous. They're in mountains and the snow is glittering. And, you know, and, and he knows that he should be appreciative of the fact that he's alive and that he can yeah. see it. And he is so heartbroken and so despairing that he can't mm. enjoy the world around him. And so I just felt that, that like anger of like, screw you, pretty view. <laughs> like, how dare you be so beautiful when I'm so miserable? Mm. That's nearly Shakespearean. Screw you, pretty view. <laughs> <laughs> screw you, pretty view. <laughs> and, you know, and the other thing that was like very tactile to me was, you know, I've forgotten that the moleskin was around his neck the whole time. And so, yes, you know, so like the snitch is this very powerful object of the resurrection stone is around Harry's neck and Harry doesn't know it. And so he has all of these protections, right? And like the broken bit of mirror, we know that Aberforth has. So 
There, mm. there are all these things that he thinks of as broken tools, but actually he has so much power in this tiny bag around his neck. And I'm wondering also, like, it was hanging next to the locket. And I wonder if there was some, I don't want to say protection in it, but at least maybe just a little shielding if the locket rested on the on the pouch instead of his chest, if there was some, yeah, just a little bit of distance there created by all of those objects. You know, I'm suddenly thinking about a parallel between all of these broken objects that Harry is carrying, right? That that sense that these things are kind of useless, but he has them anyway. And the room he stays in, which is stuffed with Dudley's old broken toys. And this sense that, I don't know, I can imagine that Harry's walking around being like, oh yeah, this is my life. Like, I thought I was going to have something different. I thought I was going to have this glorious captain of the Quidditch team life, but actually I'm just back to being unsafe, surrounded by broken things in a broken life. Like, what's the point? Those stories are so powerful in us sometimes. We only need one or two pieces of evidence that we get fully pulled back into them and lose sight, as you said, of, of the beauty of the landscape in this case, but more, more importantly, the beauty of Hermione's friendship, the beauty of all the people who were backing him at their own personal risk. Yeah, it's very sad. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you, Casper. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail this week is from Anissa. Hey, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. 
I just finished that moving sacred imagination you guys led us through for book seven, chapter 16, where we imagined ourselves into the scene of uh, Harry and Hermione visiting Harry's parents' grave. These past six months, it's been really hard to get a moment to myself, but when I have one, I put the podcast on. And this time I stopped what I was doing. I closed my eyes and I promptly burst into tears. So I'm with you, Casper. Earlier in the episode, Casper noted that Harry just wants to go somewhere where someone else is in charge, even if it means going to Hogwarts and even if the person in charge is Snape. My husband and I have a one-year-old and like so many parents right now, it's so hard to figure out how to work full time, take care of her, make sure we have what we need at home, food on the table, all with the emotional burden of a world that just doesn't seem to be going right. Imagining myself standing over Harry's parents' grave, I was Harry, and those were my parents, who thankfully are still alive. But I so, so desperately wanted to bury myself in the snow and be held in their arms and just relinquish control. I am so tired of being in control. When I was in college one summer, I stayed in St. Louis away from my hometown to take a part-time job that meant a lot to me. My parents let me know that since I wasn't coming home, I would need to cover rent and expenses myself with the money I was earning, which meant getting what ended up being four other part-time jobs. I remember that summer being emotionally difficult. I, I pulled it off financially, but the biggest challenge for me unexpectedly was taking on the idea that there was no backup there. I was, I was the person responsible for me saying that out loud. It just doesn't seem like a big deal, but I think a lot of us can actually remember the first time it occurred to us that this was a burden over time. We adults get used to that feeling, I think, and it just goes along in the background, but in hard times, there is nothing I would rather do than turn back into a five-year-old and cuddle in my parents' bed. So my blessing is for all of us who are feeling worn out and like we'd rather just not be responsible for ourselves or anyone else. May we seek out chances to let go of control and to be comforted by others. And may the memory of the peaceful moments we felt as children help us give those moments to the children in our lives, passing on the blessings of love and comfort. Thank you for the work that you guys do. And I look forward to the next episode. Oh, Anissa, I'm so grateful for your voicemail. And yeah, I I mean, I'm not a parent, so I can only imagine that feeling. And you're right. Like there is that moment. I certainly had it in university as well, where I was like, oh, it's me. I need to make these decisions and figure it out. And hopefully, you know, those of us who make that transition can have some sort of staged, (laughs) you know, release as as smooth as possible. But I I really appreciate your blessing for everyone and, and your voicemail. Thank you so much. Vanessa, it's time for us to offer a blessing. And I want to hear who you're blessing this week. So I would like to bless Miss Hermione Granger for being a thief. She is like a book, mine. She only steals books, as far as we know. She steals Dumbledore's books, and now she's stealing Batilda Bagshot's books. And I just love (laughs) that she is like, I'm entitled to all the books. 
I'm entitled to all the information. I'm entitled to all the knowledge. And I don't think we should be like going around stealing books, certainly not from bookshops. But I just love that she's pilfering knowledge literally everywhere she can go, even in crisis. She's like, mine. (laughs) What about you, Casper? Who do you want to bless? Oh my gosh, I love that so much. And I love that she doesn't open the book, right? Like she gives the book to Harry. She has this kind of instinctive sense that it's not hers to open, which is extremely generous. Yeah. Yeah, my blessing is for Dumbledore. And I want to like really step into the queer reading of of this relationship in this blessing. If this was Dumbledore's first relationship, and it seems to be the only relationship that we learn about throughout the books, this really screwed him up. It seems to have scarred him at a deep level that he's not trusted his own lovingness or his romantic love, maybe. And I just, you know, for anyone who's gone through a breakup that has like harmed them in some really primal, deep way, as I think it has for Dumbledore, I want to offer a blessing. And, you know, I I like to think that Bernadette Peters is right when she sings Time Heals Everything, but there are some things that, that just don't. And I think that's what Dumbledore experienced here. So a blessing for him. Absolutely. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. Join one of our local groups and come join the community of amazing people who are supporting us on Patreon. You can, as always, leave us a review on iTunes and please send us a voicemail. We love to hear from you. I still read every single review on iTunes, so keep them coming. And if you want to review my book too, I'm not going to complain. Next week, we'll read chapter 19, The Silver Doe, through the theme of courage. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. Thanks to Anissa for this week's voicemail, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, and always Stephanie Purcell. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be with you soon. On your marks. On your marks. On your mark singular. On your Lennon. <laughs> On your Fuka. <laughs> On your Derrida. <laughs> On your Trotsky. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>